You're listening to Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Our aim, as always, is to help the people of God understand, love, and enjoy the Word of God. For more information, visit us at theologyuntucked.com. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. I'm your host, Caleb. Uh, Tim is actually not going to be with us on this episode. Let me explain what we're doing. If you happen to listen to the eight-minute minute that was introducing this series, I'm going to recover um, some of that material. But Tim and I are starting a new series uh, called Defining Belief and Redefining Faith. Are they really one and the same? Tim and I discussed the next series to present to our listeners, and and we both felt it was important to have an idea on this discussion on this um, discussion about defining what faith and belief means, and really how the people of God should think about these two words, but personally how they should think about faith and belief. Um, in, in my preparation for this topic, I, I've, I've personally recognized how the church has really neglected this, in, in, including myself. How is it that we should theologically think about what the Bible teaches us about faith, about belief, about salvation? And Tim and I are not alone in this. The, the history of the church reveals that We've got many, many, many years of painful struggle, divisions, wars, and the like. Just trying to properly explain, define what faith is, um, what belief is. It's created um, all sorts of controversy throughout the very beginning. In fact, a lot of the biblical text is, is actually dealing with this very sort of thing. And so that's why Tim and I have decided to spend so much time on the subject. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a series of episodes that will explore the topic. Um, He's going to do a a series of episodes by himself. I will be doing a series of episodes by myself. And we'll be listening to each other's episodes and we'll be coming together to kind of talk about them. Um, Specifically, I'll be presenting what the Bible teaches about faith and three different characters that are found within the Bible narrative. Um, A story about who God is and how we as his human imagers are to respond to this revelation. There's some Greek words that I'm going to be dealing with, um, and let's just kind of go over them right now. This first word, um, it's pistuo. Um, it, it's a word that means I believe. And uh, another word, uh, pestis, pestis, is a, a word that means faith, belief, and trust. And so these Greek words are, are fitting for this exploration. And, and so what Tim and I want to introduce you to is, is this beautiful biblical paradox. And it really concerns the simplicity and the complexity in defining belief and faith. Are they really one and the same? Do the ideas of faith portrayed in the New Testament 
and the Greek language bear a different sort of meaning than the ideas of faith portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, otherwise known as the Old Testament. The first time we see this word pistuo in the Hebrew Bible concerning faith or belief is in Genesis 15.6. And this is the same text that Paul is quoting and referring to at the beginning of Romans 4. But before we start breaking down what it is that Paul says, first we want to go read about that person in this text that Paul is referring to, a person named Abraham. Interestingly, when we look up the number of times that the word faith is used in the English Bible, 422 times, it does not bear the same weight when compared to the various forms that the ideas of faith and belief have represented in the Greek and Hebrew languages. In the Septuagint alone, this word pistuo is used 48 different times in 20 different unique forms. The New Testament shows that this word is used 248 different times and in 67 different unique forms. The idea of faith and its relation to belief as portrayed in the Bible is certainly a unique one. The form of the word here used in Genesis 15.6 is also unique in its own right. The form of the word in Genesis 15.6, epistusen, is used only five other times. In Genesis 45.26, Exodus 4.31, Isaiah 53.1, Jeremiah 40.14, and Daniel 6.23. The New Testament uses this same form of the word 12 different times, and it is the third most used form of the 67 different uses. In this form here in Genesis 15:6, it is a third person singular, and it's in what is called the aorist active indicative. The active voice means that Abraham, as the subject, is the one that's performing the action meaning here that this type of faith or belief is one that is singularly personal and the tense or aspect rather is aristic and this is important because it focuses on the verbal idea of this word in its entirety but it does it without commenting upon either the process or the abiding results of the actions so why all the greek grammar why is this important so while teaching Greek syntax is not Tim and I's aim, understanding the complexities and nuances of the language is important for several different reasons. Concerning the aspect, there's three different aspects that intersect with three different tenses. There's what's called the imperfective aspect, and that focuses on the process or duration of any given action. There's also called the perfective aspect, and that focuses on the state or condition that resulted from a completed action. However, in Genesis 15.6, we're in this aorist aspect of the verb form, faith or belief, and that's what's in view. What does that mean exactly? Well, this is where it gets interesting as well as more complicated. That's why Tim and I felt the need to spend more time on this topic. It'll also be interesting to see how Tim and I land um, as we prepare for these episodes separately. You know, sparks may fly, but we'll probably be pretty surprised as to where we theologically land in the same place. 
this aorist tense aspect, what happens is it, it does not deny that these other two aspects that I previously mentioned may be present. Keeping with its name, aoristos, uh, which is aorist, uh, Greek for aorist, means undefined. And so what that means is the writer of this text chose not to comment whether or not Abraham's faith or belief came about from some process, nor does it comment on the duration of time that Abraham's faith or belief will be active, as the imperfective aspect would have communicated. Also, it doesn't comment on the state or the condition that could or will result from Abraham's initial faith or belief. Greek scholar David Allen Black says, a deviation from the aorist to another aspect in the biblical text is therefore generally exegetically significant. Remember that. I would add, at least here uh, specifically in this text, that it is theologically significant. The way that the text uses the aoristic aspect when speaking of Abraham's faith. So, what are the implications? Well, that's what this episode's going to be about. Grammatically speaking, there are some other important things to consider regarding aspect and tense, as they'll bear theological weight on the many different forms and types of faith and belief portrayed throughout the Bible and how we should think about them. A secondary consideration that applies, and only in the indicative mood, is the time of action. And so we are in the aorist indicative. Why is this important? Well, with regards to how this word is used in Genesis 15:6, it's different in some ways that this word, that the form of this word is used when talking about faith or belief. First, it's important to note that Paul uses this same aspect and mood in Romans 4.3 when quoting Genesis 15.6. Therefore, it would be wrong to assert that Paul is presenting a new type of theology, theology or abolishment of the law, as many propose. Black also says that the essential consideration of the Greek tense system is the kind of action being portrayed. In other words, was this action represented as an ongoing one, a finished one, or is it simply just an occurrence? So just as English has only three tenses, past, present, and future, so does Greek. Aspects such as the aorist, they're merely just one of three alternative uses with these three different tenses. When considering the aorist act active indicative use of the word for faith in Genesis 15:6. There are again three different types of uses that emerge when one examines how it interacts with other features of the text such as the context and lexical meanings. So an important question, what kind of faith or belief does the author of Genesis 15:6 and Paul in Romans 4:3 have in mind to communicate concerning Abraham. Remember, the aorist refrains from making any sort of comment on the kind of action involved. Here are three different aorist indicatives to consider. 
there's what's called the constative aorist. It views an action in totality. So, for example, in John 2.20, this temple was built in 46 years. Consider now, was Abraham's faith in the context of Genesis 15.6, is it now complete? What if Abraham quit believing? Could Abraham or anyone else choose to quit believing? Well, I believe that we all know those who have left the faith, so to speak, and no longer believe. Next is what's called the ingressive aorist. The ingressive aorist emphasizes the beginning of an action, such as uh, Romans 14.9, Christ died and lived, meaning he returned to life. Consider if Abraham's faith or belief in Genesis 15.6, is it in its beginning emphasis of action? Given the beginning emphasis, does that mean that the result of Abraham's faith or belief will inevitably continue, grammatically speaking? Well, it cannot in the aorist aspect. The context of Genesis 15.6 and Romans 4.3 point to no. Just a clue here. Doesn't God do something later to test Abraham's belief in his covenant with him? Think Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. As we consider the whole narrative storyline of the Bible, is the emphasis on the belief that God's people have in him or rather, is its emphasis on God's faithfulness to himself for his people? Third is what's called the effective aorist. This views an action from the vantage point of the conclusion. So, for example, Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Consider now Abraham's faith. From what perspective is the narrative spoken, first or third person? Is the author of Genesis 15.6 speaking from the perspective of knowing the end result, assuming the end result, or not considering the end result at all? The answer is we don't know. In order to determine which aorist concept that the author has in mind for faith of Abraham in Genesis 15.6, there's other features of the text that we also want to examine. There's the verb he counted, elagiste, and the noun for righteousness, dikaiosunen. And their respective forms here are important for understanding the full weight of the context of faith for Abraham in Genesis 15.6. First, the definition of righteousness in a broad sense is understood as the state of a person who is as he or she ought to be in a condition acceptable to God. The form of the noun here is in the accusative case singular. The accusative means the noun that represents the object. And since it's singular, Abraham is the only one being represented. The verb counted is aorist aspect passive voice indicative mood third person. So just as Abraham's faith is not commented on, commented on grammatically, 
regarding the process or the end results. The righteousness that's counted to Abraham by God is not defined either. The time of action is grammatically in the past, in the ingressive aorist aspect, as it emphasizes the beginning of Abraham's faith, but I believe more properly should be understood as belief. Also, the passive voice means that the subject, Abraham, is the one being acted upon by God. The indicative mood means that the author affirmed the factuality of this statement. There are also other moods or potential moods. And the idea being that potential moods represent action that is possible but not actual. Black again notes, it should be emphasized that the speaker's choice of mood does not necessarily correspond to objective reality. Therefore, the writer of the text could be masking the real, the real mood deliberately or even lying. For example, in John 18, 17, when Peter is asked if he is Jesus' disciple and he says, I am not, we know that he's lying there. While lying is not contextually in play here in the narrative of Genesis 15.6, we have the benefit of hindsight. The, the point being, the potentialities and possibilities regarding Abraham's initial belief and how God counted his actions of faith as righteousness are quite numerous in the aorist aspect. Given that this is the beginning of the narrative of the patriarch of the people of Israel, and also in regard to this idea of the seed of faith, this is theologically significant. Note that faith is delivered to people of God by one person, himself, through one person, Abraham, but through God's initiation. Many biblical images should come to mind here. The Christological type of Abraham and his belief, for example, However, Abraham's belief does not bear the same sort of theological weight that God's faith does, or later, Jesus Christ's faith does. While the covenant of the Old Testament has been replaced with a new covenant, the New Testament does not present a new theology. No idea in the Bible joins the Old Testament and the New Testament more beautifully than the faith of God and Jesus towards his people. She's the centerpiece and focus, the Mona Lisa, if you will, of God's great masterpiece. Whose faith is in view? Abraham's faith here in Genesis 15:6 can better be understood as belief given its ingressive aorist feature that emphasizes this initial action. And this makes sense. While faith involves an initial belief, it does not always bear the type of faith as a belief that perseveres or a believing loyalty. That is, if it is not spiritually focused on the faith of the one who initiated the action in the first place. Think about the story of the people of Israel. While they were chosen or elect as God's people, what happened to them when they worshipped the gods of the other nations? Eventually, God destroyed them. Election, therefore, cannot mean that the inevitable result or belief will always be a faithful perseverance unto salvation. 
That is unless you believe that Baal worshippers go to heaven. Just so you know, they don't. Also, when it comes to the story of Abraham's faith, our emphasis should be placed upon Yahweh and not Abraham. God is the one who initiates the relationship with Abraham. What did Abraham do to deserve this? The answer is absolutely nothing. Remember, Abraham is introduced to the narrative after God has divided the nations according to the number of sons of God, Deuteronomy 32.8. The author here is uh, referencing the Tower of Babel event and the table of nations that are listed um, after the descendants of uh, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in Genesis 10 and 11. But Deuteronomy 32.8 closes by stating, But Jacob shall be the Lord's allotted portion. Jacob, which is Abraham's grandson, or Israel. God initiates this relationship with Abraham, and he responds properly. However, faith or initial belief is not what is emphasized with Abraham from what the text reveals. But in Genesis 15:6, when God tells Abraham his descendants will number as many as the stars of the sky and that his barren wife, Rachel, of 80 plus years, will bear him a son, Abraham does initially believe God. But as we eventually see, it's only temporary. In conclusion, we need to reread Romans 4 considering what we've just covered. The text says, What should we say that Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His pay is not credited due to the grace, but due to obligations. But to the one who does not work, but believes. Believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous. His faith is credited as righteousness. So even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Does that sound different in your heart? I, I know it does mine. Some thoughts and questions to consider before the next episode. Abraham's seed of faith that was counted to him as righteousness by God gave birth to the nation of Israel. Was it meant to imply that a literal genealogical seed or a spiritual seed of faith was in view, or both? Does a literal genealogical seed imply that God's people, Israel, had an automatic end to the land of Canaan promised, by Abraham, promised to Abraham by God? Did it mean that they had an automatic end to heaven by being God's chosen race? How did God view the other nations? Did they have the opportunity to come into relationship with God and inherit the same promise as the Israelite community? 
That is all for the beginning episode of the Defining Faith series. Thanks for listening. I uh, look forward to um, listening to what um, Tim has to say on this uh, initial study. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. Thank you so much for listening to us. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to Theology Untucked. Join us each week as we engage in all things theological, biblical, and cultural. These are the types of conversations we should be having in the church today, and we aim to play our part. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like us to address, or a prayer request, please send them to us. You can reach me at caleb at theologyuntucked.com. Or you can reach me at tim at theologyuntucked.com. Do note that your prayer requests remain strictly confidential. We will not be sharing them on the show. For more information or to support the show, please visit TheologyUntucked.com. Lord's blessings to you all.